1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection.
2: Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the Restless Ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from
0: HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, let's dive right into some some statistics. Okay. Our favorite thing. All right. And I think it will ease us into the topic of the day. Okay. (laughs) So I want to talk about uh, something that was published in 2009, which revealed that about half of American adults use a vibrator on a regular basis. On a regular
0: basis. And that is men, that's women, that's gay, that's
2: straight, all these people using vibrators. And what was interesting about this study in particular, not just the number of people that use vibrators, but what was really interesting was that the women who use them had better sexual health because they're more likely to have a gynecological exam during the past year. They're more likely to do self-examinations to make sure that the body was still, everything was looking the way it was supposed to be. And men were more likely to do testicular self-exams too. So basically the study was showing that these people who use vibrators tend to take better care of all their their special parts. And the women and men also who were using the vibrators
0: also tended to rate a little bit higher on sexual satisfaction. So with no further ado, maybe we should back up 100 plus years mm-hmm. to figure out where where all the buzz came from with vibrators, because these days we might associate vibrators with sex toys and CD sex shops and things like that. But their history is purely rooted in medicine,
2: medicine, very um, and very, you know, no eyebrows raised when no. the vibrator started uh, to appear in doctor's offices. It was it was non-controversial at all. Whereas, you know, you you read about a study like this 2009 one, people are like, oh, my gosh, all these people are using vibrators. But I think the link is that the, the better sexual health and mm-hmm. the better health overall Kind of links the modern statistics to this history we're going to go back to. Right. Because one thing I found really fascinating
0: about the history of vibrators is that it was actually considered far less
2: controversial than the gynecological speculum. Right. Because the speculum was inserted during an exam. Right. Whereas vibrators were purely external use. But let's talk about why you might be using a vibrator in the Victorian era in the first place. One word hysteria hysteria gripped a nation a nation many nations women. the women just kept coming down with hysteria from from early early times like oh, you've yeah. got people like Hippocrates Galen writing about these uh fits that women would have where they just couldn't breathe where they just weren't acting right everything was oh it's just crazy like the stereotypical female craziness these these early uh, doctors could not figure out and they always blamed it. On the womb and the uterus, yeah, in nineteen hundred BC, ancient Egyptians blamed
0: hysteria, which we will later find out is really just sexual frustration, on the uterus wandering from the womb into the throat and making it hard for a woman to breathe. and a little a little uh, linguistic fun fact, hysteria
2: comes from the word uterus. Mm-hmm. and we talked a little bit about that in the celibacy podcast about how, Doctors of olden days would, would prescribe sex as this way to curb the wandering womb. Well, sex for married people, Molly. True. And that's, that's where we're gonna get into, uh, why some, some ladies needed more help than others. Yeah, because in the
0: 16th century, if you weren't married, if you were, say, single or widowed or a nun, the cure for your hysteria Would have been vigorous horseback exercise or movement of the pelvis in a swing,
2: rocking chair or carriage. Or they told uh, once trains started coming, when they had the industrial revolution, they would tell women just to hop a train Mm -hmm. and to let the rocking of the train take care of it. But let's say that there were no horses around. You weren't married or you were married and your husband just couldn't seem to solve this womb problem on his own. You would go to the doctor and what the doctor would do is he would massage the vulvular area mm-hmm. till he brought you to what was deemed a hysterical proxism, a.k.a.
0: an orgasm. And this would cure the classic symptoms, supposedly, of hysteria, which would include anxiety, sleeplessness, irritability, nervousness, erotic fantasy, sensations of heaviness in the abdomen, lower pelvic edema, and vaginal lubrication aka sexual arousal. Yeah. I mean really it's just curing your your libido.
2: <laughs> and so the thinking is is that maybe uh, you know people just weren't that knowledgeable about what might lead a woman to orgasm. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't a topic for polite conversation. Nope. And so going to the doctor to have this regular massage was not seen as as anything deviant or or wrong. It was purely curing medical symptoms. Yeah. The doctors didn't seem to get any pleasure out of it. It was just, you know, Another another day at the office and because, you know, it it was advocated by so many medical professionals it was like, all right, this is something I'll have to do regularly every two weeks or so. I'll head into the doctor's office, get my massage be cured from hysteria for a few weeks. And doctors would use
0: vulvular massage for non-orgasmic purposes as well, including to treat constipation, arthritis, muscle fatigue, uh, laryngitis, and tumors. So bringing women to hysterical paroxysms, and men too sometimes, uh, had a wide range of applications. But one thing about these massages... Sometimes they were just kind of tiresome <laughs> for the doctors. Sometimes their hands just got really worn out. And I'm not
2: trying to be crass. Yeah. There there are medical records of doctors really taking really hours yeah, to like try and and cure this hysteria. And also if you were a doctor in business, it was not uh very uh easy to see a bunch of patients mm-hmm. if you never knew how long a hysterical patient was gonna take uh to reach her proxism. And so, uh, it was, you know, it wasn't a very good business model to have, uh, these indeterminate, uh, appointments going on.
0: And also for, for a while, water treatments became popular. And while they did work maybe a little bit more, a little easier than, than the manual treatment, they weren't exactly clean and not exactly portable. So in the 1880s, Dr. Joseph Mortimer Granville, comes along in patents the first electromechanical vibrator. And my goodness, were doctors everywhere relieved.
2: Oh, my goodness. It just took off, and there were all sorts of models that doctors could buy. You can buy, like, hand-cranked models. You could buy models... That you operated with the foot pedal. There were some that were like forks, and they vibrated that way. And there some were- hung from the ceiling. I don't know how that works. <laughs> and there were, I mean, it just, uh, just every single model of a vibrator that you could imagine. Even some Floor you couldn't models, imagine.
0: Ceiling models attached to tables, wire coils called vibratiles, turbines, gas engines.
2: And it was just, it was a revelation for doctors that they could just, you know, turn this thing on and, and it was worked much faster than, uh, using your fingers. It was a little bit cleaner. And again, as he said, it wasn't like a speculum that you had to insert. They were just doing this on the external genitalia. So it was on the up and up according to society. And get this, the vibrator was only the fifth
0: household device to be electrified after the sewing machine, fan, tea kettle, and toaster. So before we had the electric vacuum cleaner and iron, we had the, va- we had the, the vibrator. And by 1917, there were more
2: vibrators in the home electric toasters. I know that's insane, crazy. And um, and so there were you would find them in all these catalogs. In fact, a lot of the knowledge we have about the vibrator today is thanks to a researcher named Rachel Mains, who was actually doing a uh, history of needlecraft in America. So and she then it was, took a spicy turn, <laughs> took a very unexpected turn because she was paging through this old needlecraft catalog and started finding these advertiser advertisements for home vibrators. And this wasn't from 1906. Mm -hmm. Imagine looking through all these old needlecraft catalogs and and finding these ads that you would normally expect to find in in Saucy magazines. So that's when she ditches the needlecraft. Yeah. and uh starts investigating why vibrators were being sold at that time and and comes across this hysteria thing and and the fact that the women weren't being were really being uh treated quite right by their uh partners and she ends up writing a book called The Technology of the Orgasm
0: which is really i guess kind of the the go-to book for the history of the vibrator and just for fun uh here's here's an advertising tagline from one of those very respectable magazine ads for vibrators says, all the pleasure of youth will throb inside of you. Doesn't sound too bad. And vibrators were, in fact, so popular that they were a driving force behind the creation of the small electric motor. So really, I mean, this is a huge technological innovation that we have to thank, you know, the vibrator for. Mm-hmm. Without, without vibrators and this craze about women's hysteria. You know, would we would we have to a vacuum
2: cleaner, a vacuum cleaner? And, you know, I mean, maybe the women would have never been able to get up to vacuum if they kept having all these hysterical symptoms that they never figured out how to cure.
0: If we still had to go get vulvular massages <laughs> every two weeks, we my God,
2: how would we have a break through the glass ceiling? And men, don't think that uh, you were absent from this revolution as well, because 1899, just a few decades after the women's vibrator movement really gets going, John Muir aka that legendary naturalist, mm-hmm. invent patents of vibrator for men as well. So men are also using vibrators at this time. Their ailments can be cured by a vibrating massager. Probably, probably not using them as much as women, but... You never know. You never know. So we've got vibrators being sold directly to men and women via catalog. We've got doctors administering uh, massages in their doctor's offices. Now, unfortunately, along comes Freud. I don't know. Maybe not unfortunately. I guess. I don't know. You can draw your own conclusions because old Freud comes along and he's like, this is not going to work. We need to stop treating women's hysteria with these massages, with orgasms. They need to talk it out. That is the only thing that is going to work. You're not really solving their problems, but just, you know, putting a Band-Aid on them. Stop doing this. Talk to them. So, you know, you can... You know, Freud, you can make a ton of jokes about Freud and women and sex, but he was the one who, who brings an end to this. He ends all the fun. But right around that same time, vibrators start showing up in stag films. That is true. In the 1920s, uh, as as Slate puts it, stag reels blew the vibrators cover. Because a lot of people, I guess, based on Maine's research, just sort of pretended that what was happening was not an orgasm. Yeah, It was just, you know... Uh, a brief histor- hysterical paroxysm.
0: And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we've mentioned many times now that nothing was going inside of mm-hmm. a woman. It was all outside, you know, no sexual. No different than a back massage. Yeah,
2: because remember at this time, you know, vi- Victorian couples did not have Cosmo magazine to help uh learn how to please a partner. So intercourse might have been very bland, let's just say. And, um you know, at this point, when you've got these stag films coming out, they're showing, you know, you they're making that explicit connection between what the vibrator does and what happens in the bedroom. So that's that's sort of when I think the first explicit that we could find link between sex and the vibrator comes mm-hmm. into play.
0: Yeah. And once it becomes tainted by those stag films, the most famous of which is called The Nun's Story. Not the one with Audrey Hepburn. Not the one starring Audrey Hepburn. Uh but once they once vibrators get this sexy edge to it, they have to go under the rug. And it becomes something that scholars call camouflage technology. Vibrators don't go away. They just become home
2: massagers. Mm, a back scratcher. Yeah. So um that's how they were sold in catalogs is with very, you know, Uh, euphemistic titles. You can't really say what it's for. And in some states, like uh, there's this case in Alabama where you can't say it's a sex toy. Mm -hmm. You have to show that it's used for medical purposes and going back sort of to that old Victorian era. So, um, But one interesting fact that I came across because I don't remember this, was that in the 80s, when Reagan was president, his Surgeon General, C. Everett Koop, mailed out this list of safe sex options to every household um and vibrators were on the list.
0: Yeah, and they did this in response to the AIDS epidemic at the time. So they were trying to, you know, educate people on on safe sex. And lo and behold, vibrators kind of come back into a little more public acceptance, come a little more out in the open. You can least. stop using things like back scratcher to put yeah. them into catalogs. We all know why you're getting the Hitachi Magic Wad.
2: Right, the jig is up. <laughs> So that was the history of vibrators, the buzz on this, this fascinating device that may have, you know, led to the vacuum cleaner. Yeah. So if you have anything that you would like to add, bearing email. in mind that we do have a spam filter. So we do have
0: a spam filter. So don't title it, the email vibrators. Keep it G rated, folks. Our email is momstuff
2: at howstuffworks.com. And I have an email. That was sent to that very address. It was from Kristen, but not you, Kristen. This is Kristen with a K. And she writes, I'm a librarian and I love my career very much. I graduated from college with a teaching degree and wasn't particularly happy in that profession. I realized that I didn't go into teaching because I loved teaching, but because I loved learning. Big difference. I went back to graduate school for my MLS and have been extremely happy in this profession ever since. When you tell people you're a librarian, they always assume that you work in a public library. I think it's important for people to understand that there are many opportunities outside of public libraries. Librarians are employed by hospitals, law firms, universities, museums, art galleries, manuscript galleries, private corporations, government agencies, and publishing companies. I've seen job postings over the years for companies like WebMD, ESPN, and Pixar, just to name a few. If someone enjoys learning on a daily basis and seeks variety in their occupation, librarianship is an excellent career choice. Maybe I should become a librarian. I I really want to become a librarian, I think. (sighs) All right, well, I've
0: got another library-related email here from Lydia. Lydia writes, I am a professional librarian and have been for almost 15 years, and I guess I'm considered one of those cool or hip librarians. I have some fellow cool librarian friends, and we're happy to use our personal biases and interests to enhance our library's collections in interesting and maybe subversive ways. But... In general, I think most librarians are really square. Just try going to a library conference or large meeting. Hipsters will certainly find a niche, but as a whole, groupings of librarians are heavily weighted with the elderly female, grandma frumpy, can't dance, doesn't get out too much type. Don't get me wrong, some of them might be fascinating people too, but believe me, it's not like working for MTV. But I wonder, Molly, if MTV
2: has a library... Oh, I bet they do a little bit. I thought you were going to ask whether MTV just has old people working there. Kurt Loader. (laughs) Zing. (laughs) And on that note,
0: uh, you guys can write us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And finally, we would love for you to like us on Facebook. And I said finally, but I should have said second to last because really finally, you can read our blog, Stuff i Never Told You at (laughs) howstuffworks.com.